It is the second day of March, Midge. How's the year going for you? Is it going by fast? Oh, it's yeah, it's going quick. I'm still I'm still getting used to 2023 as a year in general. Yeah. Yeah, it's going pretty fast for me too. So let's hope it continues going well for both of us. Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast. I am your host, Danny Paul. Joining me in the Bob Media Studios is our newly minted vice host. That's right. He is a friend of the show returning. Please welcome the Midge, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, where are the white women at? How you doing, sir? What's up, party people? Leon was hosting a friend from the Columbus tonight, and Mr. Jones is on baby duty, so he may or may not be joining us, but it's you and me, pal. Welcome to the show. Honorary member, vice host. <laughs> What's your brand for tonight, Mitch? I've released the Kraken. Oh, no. Yes. You're probably familiar with the Kraken Black Spiced Rum 94 Proof. Ooh. This one comes from the Tears of Sea, sea Creatures. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's a little, um, it's darker than I remember, but I, I never minded it a little dark. Is that the one with the large being on the front? Yeah. This is um, the, the big oh, wow. ass. Yeah, yeah. Thing. That have handles on it? It does. And the eyes on it follow you like the Mona Lisa. It's creepy. It is creepy. <laughs> I am probably finishing up my wheated bourbon journey. Uh, I am having the Larceny Kentucky Straight wheated bourbon mash bill. I've gone through all the other wheated bourbons that I could find anywhere in the store because I didn't want to waste any more of my precious bottle of Weller, but I think I've done all of my possible wheated bourbon finds. And uh, sadly, to Leon, I'll be going back to my beloved scotch next episode. But for now, we drink to the wheated bourbon. Mazel. Mazel tazel, that's what I'm saying. All right, now that we talked about brown, let's talk about brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? Brown. That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Can I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Nice talk about brown. Comes to us from Stars Insider. And it's a quick one because this is kind of a, a new format. We're playing around with lots of different segments. Uh, for those of you just joining the Bottle of Brown podcast, we are in season three. And we used to have a pretty staid format, but now we're mixing things up. But we always start with talking about Brown. That's kind of a staple. But depending on the direction that the show goes, we kind of gave Leon his own loathe in season two. And then we wanted to open up the loathe to everybody else. So the Mitch might have something he wants to talk about and get off his chest later on. So without further ado, we want to try and squeeze through some of our segments here. So this one, Mitch, is called Wild Whiskey Facts You Never Knew. You ready? I'm ready. Ready to jump in? Here we go. This is an easy one. Is whiskey, whiskey, spelled with an E or not? What do you think? What's your call? What say you, sir? I've never seen it spelled without the E, but I'm guessing based on the question that it's spelled without the E somewhere. This has come up on the pod before, and we've talked about this at length. 
Whiskey with an E is American. Most people have seen both spellings of the word, but few have ever bothered to think of the difference. Whiskey without the E is used only to describe whiskey from Scotland and Canada. Whiskey made anywhere else from Ireland to Kentucky is spelled with the E. So if you're having a Canadian Scotch whiskey or a Crown Royale, that's whiskey without. If you're going to the beloved Scotland, whiskey without. Everywhere else, whiskey with an E. Do you think people make up these rules when they get drunk, like all of the alcohol related rules are dumb, but I'm guessing they all come, they, they all start with somebody getting wasted and coming up with a rule like champagne only being from the champagne region of France, everywhere else. It's just sparkling white wine. Yeah. I think people love to have a drink to get together and then they sing songs and they pee in their pants and they laugh and they giggle. And then towards the end of the night, they get kind of surly as it's wearing off and they're like, nobody else can be in our club. Only us. I think you're right about that especially in Ireland and Kentucky. Right. So we're going to have our whiskey with an E because it's whiskey. And we're American. Damn it. Yeah. So allegedly Scotland and Canada don't use the E for whatever reason. And then everywhere else you can put an E in it, but whatever, put it in a glass and drink it. My friends. Next one. Whiskey. In Gaelic, whiskey is an ancient drink and the word is equally ancient origins. In Scotch Gaelic, whiskey comes from whiskey beeth which means the water of life. If anybody that loves our show, episode, that's exactly just, what it is. We're going to do an entire episode one day just speaking in Old English. That could be fun. Well, we could have a ton of fun with really that. Unintelligible. The thy though cometh on the bellieth of hereth. Uh, I had to do an entire class all, all in Old English. I wanted to kill myself. It was awful. <laughs> just uh, awful. It's all the thy thou, right? Yeah. Whiskey or penicillin. You ready for this one? It's a well-known fact that many factories in the United States were repurposed to fulfill the needs of the war machine during World War II. What first comes to mind is all of the car factories that began to make plane engines, but an oft-forgotten example concerns the many bourbon distilleries that were charged with the task of making penicillin to send overseas. I think that's why this stuff is such a great painkiller, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> a little, little splash of penicillin. Never hurt anyone. A little bit of grandpa's cough medicine. Hey, if you get the clap, have some whiskey. Chances are it is known. A constant flow of scotch. As of 2019, scotch whiskey, no E, accounted for 75% of the country's food and drink exports. On average, 42 bottles of whiskey left the country every single second. Now, this That's to me comes as no surprise because what is Scotland known for? Certainly not tape. <laughs> what, do you th what do you think? What's your, what, what do you think of it's, when you think of Scotland? I would say it's, it's whiskey kilts and bagpipes and yep. the kilts and bagpipes both happen at the same time. Probably, probably get sent in the same package. Yeah, it's not the cuisine. I don't know anybody that likes haggis. Oh, that's Certainly not true. Not. I, I do know one guy that likes haggis, but that's it. He's he's the guy. One thing, one thing uh, Great Britain in general could never be accused of is uh, fantastic culinary masters. I think that's true. Nowhere, nowhere that I went on, on in the Great Isles was I impressed with the food. I don't think anybody ever refers to the British as having good food. Now, the British are, are pretty exceptional at making other people's food. If you've ever had... Indian in Britain, or if you've read French in London, they actually do a pretty good job of it. But the actual native British cuisine is probably nothing too exciting. Yeah. And those are mainly immigrants making those, uh, those other foods. So you can't really, See, you, can't, you can't credit the natives with that. 
right? Too much. Uh, barrels bear the majority. Kentucky, a state that is home to around 4.5 million people, is home to more than three times as many bourbon barrels, somewhere around 10 million. So there's two barrels per person in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> That's pretty wicked, huh? Whiskey and horses, baby. Whenever you're in Kentucky, you know that there's two barrels with your name on it, at mm. least. <laughs> Sassy. Casks stretching across the sea. Scotland, on the other hand, has four times as many casks as it has citizens. Of course, they wouldn't. They wouldn't export the barrels. They would just export the stuff that goes in them. Laid end to end, Scotland's 20 million whiskey casks would reach across the Atlantic from Edinburgh to New York City six times over. Fun That's fact, I think the Scottish actually uh, tried building a bridge to the moon using... Scotch barrels. Whiskey barrels. You could walk from so you could walk from Edinburgh to New York City without getting your feet wet. I can't tell (laughs) if that's a problem or not. It's why they're not really known for anything else. No, I guess not. But hey, if you're going to be known for something, shit, that's the stuff. Yeah, why not? Uh, While the state of Kentucky is by far the state most associated with whiskey, it doesn't claim the spirit as its official state beverage. That honor is awarded to the southern state of Alabama. That one just made my head explode. The official drink of Alabama is whiskey and not Tennessee or Kentucky. What the fuck? That explains so much of Alabama's political <laughs> policies. <laughs> and politicians, for that matter. Official beverage in Alabama. I spent 10 days in Alabama. Couldn't wait to get the hell out. No offense to Alabama. But- I met some nice people from Alabama, but if that's their official drinks. I don't know, maybe you got to yeah. think about having a house there. Uh, Old Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew, as in do the do, as in the bright neon black light piss soft drink. Before it became the much maligned soft drink we know of it as today, was originally developed to be nothing more than a whiskey chaser. It even borrows its name from an old nickname from Moonshine, Mountain Dew. Do you believe it? It's too easy not to be made up. <laughs> I, I still feel like Mountain Dew was the uh, green liquid they used to spray the plants with in idiocracy. <laughs> Pretty sure that was the same stuff. Like if I had to guess. Mountain Dew, the original chaser. I guess you got picklebacks and all kinds of other things now. But back in the day, that was the idea. You take a shot of whiskey and you chase it with Mountain Dew. And then somebody said, wait a minute, let's bottle this and give it to kids. Maybe that was it. <laughs> Maybe there's a kid in the bar. And they I love that kiddo. it's a new story. They couldn't resist to call it the much maligned soft drink. Oh, yeah, we much know maligned. It today. Well, it was like an X <laughs> Games drink for a so while, big. but does anybody talk about Mountain Dew anymore? No. Uh, if any of the Bobs listening out there want to talk about it, you can send us a note. And that wraps up our odd whiskey facts. Did you have a favorite? Yeah, I, I think that uh I think I think that four times the whiskey barrels is there are people you like just imagine the volume of that you take one person like literally by pure mass that's like there's like 10 times as much whiskey is there is human flesh bone and organs running around scott that's that's mind-blowing it really is tasks per citizen that's pretty wicked awesome sauce anyway that's talking about brown let's get to our top story news team And I got news for you. Nice top story comes to us from Ars Technica. Ars Technica. AI generated comic artwork loses U.S. copyright protection. Zarya images not protected by copyright. Words and arrangement remain protected. What do you know about AI? What do you know about this uh, stable diffusion stuff? Oh, Chat GPT man. and all that. What do you know? This is this has scared the shit out of me since it started yeah? hitting for so many reasons. Okay, go it's, for it. Uh, I think I think it's 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 easy to get excited about it and terrified about it. And I don't know if we should be either, 
but it does seem like one of those things that it's going to be, it's going to be hard to wrangle at some point. It mm-hmm. is going to like, this is just now coming out and, and the, they have a good idea of its capabilities, but they really have no idea why it does some of the things that it does. And I actually watched, uh, I was watching um, last week tonight, a little earlier, the, the one that came out two or three days ago. With and Oliver? With, with Mr. Oliver, one of my favorite humans on, on the earth. And one of the things that they talked about was that a lot of what this technology does now is it pulls its information from the internet and then it sort of develops its opinions and personality from that information. That's terrifying because we're literally creating this computer generated being that not only goes down rabbit holes, but go down, goes down the wrong ones. There was a, there was a, I think it was a, a Microsoft um, chat bot that they developed and basically gave it a Twitter account and let it just go, just let it do its thing. And it turned into such a horrible racist in less than 24 hours that they had to delete the Twitter account because it's, it's information uh, source was, was hundred percent the internet. And if you kind of look at the fact that like 95% of the internet internet now is just trolls. Oh yeah. I know we know the internet, the internet is all quality all the time. This is, this is, this is not where we want our, our computer information or our computer generated being, whatever you want to call it. It's not where we want it coming from. And it's, it's scary that, um, the, the evil that it could potentially unleash. Yeah. These things are basically an indictment of our species because they take everything from the internet archived all the way up to 2021. And it mines the content on websites for speech patterns. And it tries to put what it's called a large language model. And the idea is that it will regurgitate information in the likeness of the way humans communicate. And it's supposed to be able to be conversational rather than pull up, you know, 17 underlined blue links on a Google search. You now get one voice that says, this is the definitive single source of truth for the answer to your question. And the challenge with that is if it pulls from shit data, you're going to get a shit question and you usually get a shit opinion on that shit question. But I, there, there's a real big problem on the visual side of it because anybody that knows anybody who's a graphic designer knows that they get asked for free shit all the time. And the hardest thing to do is to get somebody to pay you as a graphic designer because nobody seems to respect the field. All due respect to graphic designers out there. I have a couple of them that I really enjoy as friendships with, but they do not get paid and it's a real big struggle for them. So they've taken all these language models and these AI algorithms and they've combed billions of images and then found a way to lump them all together. So what you're getting now, whenever you ask one of these engines to draw you something, is you're getting a mishmash of all of the stuff that it's scanned over the years and put together based on what it thinks you're asking for. And so what the U.S. Copyright Office declared um, correctly in my mind is that using the AI powered mid journey image generator should not have been granted copyright protection and images copyright protection will be revoked as in if AI makes it, you cannot copyright it. And I, for one, think that's a good thing until further notice. But anytime you run into a scenario where artificial intelligence is doing something, you have to kind of go back to, well, whose responsibility is it? So think about this autonomous driving, the car is driving itself. If the car gets in an accident, whose fault is it? Is it the owner of the car's yeah, fault? It seems like it seems like the company, the company that made it would have to be held responsible, but it's, it's going to be, I mean, this is going to be a, a mess for, for the court system. A lot of this is going to be a mess for the court system because 
yeah, legally it's oh, holding, holding these companies responsible is eventually going to, there, there's going to be so many violations of law that happen and they're going to go, we didn't do it. The AI right. did it. Well, yeah, I did it. Well, great. We'll throw the AI. AI in jail. This is right. And it's, it's almost like, well, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, throwing, throwing parents in jail when their kids shoot up a school, right? Are they responsible? Some would argue yes. And there's probably something to that, but they're not, they're, they're, they're not the ones who committed the crime also. Right. So well, are you an bring accomplice? It, bring it closer to home. If, you, if your cat scratches you? somebody, whose fault is it? Right. You, you're the owner of the cat. It's your fault. Yeah. Because you're like, well, that's the cat. The cat did it. And you're like, well, what do you want me to do? Put the cat in jail? No, it's your cat. It's your problem. So I always go back to that uh, that skit that Ron White did. Where he was talking about his ex-wife and his ex-wife would call him and say, Ron, the dog shit on the couch again. It's like, he's a dog. Clean it up. You're so <laughs> insensitive to my feelings, Ron. I'm sorry, honey. Put the dog on the phone. That's what it sounds like. That's the argument. This whole thing makes me think of uh, that that Chappelle show episode. Uh, he would, The guy was such a prophet in so many ways. Chappelle show episode where um, he portrays, he really asked the question, what would the internet be like if it were a location? <laughs> and you got this guy going from one shop to another, right? It was a mall, and he yeah. Goes to one shop and they go, hey, you want a bunch of free music? He's like, yeah, I'd love some free music. <laughs> and he goes, he goes to another place. Hey, you want to tell a celebrity they're an asshole and they may, they may have to read about it. Absolutely. I do. And he finally comes out like three hours later and he looks exhausted and somebody else comes up to him and goes, Hey, you want to have watch somebody have sex with a goat? And he's like, yes, I do. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like that in a way it's like, shit, this, this dark hole that we're going to slide down, but it's not even us now. It's just, now it's the computer doing it on its own. Right. And you're going to have computers arguing with each other and being trolls. Yeah. Anyway, the, whole, the whole thing about this article centers around a comic book called Zarya of the Dawn, which was created entirely by an AI algorithm. And they did the story. They did the images. They did a full book. Like this is a complete work of art that you could probably print on a printing press, put it on the shelf and somebody would buy it and they would enjoy it. My understanding is the story is actually kind of interesting. The challenge is that the owner of the story that fed it into the algorithm that made the images that made the book now wants to copyright it. And what the U.S. Copyright Office came back and said is if a human didn't do this, then a human can't copyright it. And so the person here was uh, Chris Kashtanova. Uh, the U.S. Copyright Office came in and said, we conclude that Ms. Kashtanova is the author of the work's text, as well as the selection, coordination, and arrangement of the work's written and visual elements, reads the copyright letter. That authorship is protected by copyright. However, as discussed below, the images in the work that were generated by the mid-journey technology are not the product of human authorship and are therefore not copyrightable. It's interesting However, that they... They they picked up or they they just uh, zeroed in on the images and not the other content. Yeah, I mean, if it was made by a human, you can copyright it. But if it's not made by a human, then no. Uh, however, as the letter explains, after the Copyright Office learned that the work included AI-generated images through Castanova's social media posts, it issued a notice to Castanova in October stating that it intended to cancel the registration unless she provided additional information showing why the registration should not be canceled. Castanova's attorney responded to the letter in November with an argument that Castanova authored every aspect of the work with mid-journey serving merely as an assistive tool. So that brings up a very interesting problem again, which is something that I've predicted, which I don't know if I've said it on the show or not, but I'll, I'll say it now. These artificial intelligence 
models, whether they be for transcription, language, text, images, you're going to liquefy and delete all entry-level white-collar work. So if anybody's got a job right out of school where you're writing copy or you're drawing images or you're transcribing text or you're translating, guess what? You're out of a job, which means your job now is to skill up to the next level. And if you haven't begun, start now. It's interesting you say that because I remember us talking about, remember us talking about this uh, golfing. It was, I don't know, probably six months ago. And the point that I brought up was, how is this not going to eliminate anything that we call labor now? Um, in that if, if you have a computer or, you know, if you, you, you talk about blue collar manual labor, whatever, something that they requires some kind of physical exertion robots. And you take those two things, you take the, the, uh, intelligence side, the, the kind of thing that can be create, created by any thought process. And then you take anything that can be created, that can be, um, copied and done better by a robot or other machine, what is left for humans to do as a job? How, how are we employed in any way, shape or form? Because I agree with you on the point of a lot of white collar jobs going away because of this. I feel like everybody kind of agrees on that, but in, in the longer term, looking down the road, 20, 25 years, how, how does this leave work for anyone? If we have either AI or robots or, or, or some kind of combination of the two, that can be do any they can do anything that we call labor today. What does that leave for humans to do? So it's easy to jump to the you know utopia of we're all just gonna sit back and do nothing, you know, like Wally, where we're all just fat, gelatinous cubes on chairs being conveyed around a ship. I, I don't think we're anywhere near that. What I think is gonna happen with this stuff is exactly what happened with the welding robots on the automotive assembly line. You know, somebody used to have 12 welders in a car frame and they used to get in and they used to hit their spot welds, they used to do their job, and the next car would come and they do the same job. And it's repetitive and they do it over and over again. Somebody came in with an articulating arm that can now do 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 and hit it all. And they increased productivity like six or eight X. And now that one welding robot is doing the job of 12 humans and it's banging them out hot because it doesn't sleep. It doesn't eat. It doesn't have to go to the bathroom. doesn't complain to its boss. doesn't have his spouse at home. None of that shit. It just works and works and works. What happened was you've now sent demand sliding madly up and down the chain. So you got to have somebody to maintain the robot. You got to have somebody to feed the robot. So now you have more demand coming on that side of the supply chain. On the backside, you now have somebody that needs to do spot checks on the welds, which the robot's not going to do itself. It's just going to bang, bang, bang the weld. So on both sides of where the robot is disrupted, you now have more demand forcing more human involvement until such time as they can automate each of those. So my take on your question is, while we're going to lose a lot of entry-level jobs in copywriting, graphic design, social media posting, so on and so forth, you're going to have to double, triple, quadruple the amount of editors. They're going to look through that shit and make sure that it's correct. Nothing racist, nothing trolling. It's got to check for grammar. It's got to check for context. And it's got to check whether or not that's what we want to say as a company, because it's very easy for something to spit out when it regurgitates from the internet but as you so aptly pointed out earlier in our conversation, the internet is a sewer. Yeah. That's what I think. That's where I think this is going. So going a little bit further on down the line, let's say 30, 40 years from now, when uh, so much so much of what, what we would call labor today has gone away, or if you just start having huge masses of people, right, who 
don't have the, don't have the skills or or really any any means of making a living based on even is even their college education now we have a huge chunk of population with literally nothing to do and i mean even if you have say even if their income is taken care of you have uh you know universal income plan or something so that they're financially they're taken care of the idea that you have that many people with nothing to do is terrifying <laughs> really is i mean if you think about it if if you have you have people with no sense of um nothing to accomplish right Nothing to be proud of other than, you know, reaching some level on World of Warcraft or, or, or I, you know, I think some, you see something we now. wouldn't call an achievement today. What what do people have to grab onto and what even motivates people at that point? I, I think you're seeing that now. I think you're seeing that in the YouTube generation. I mean, my kids don't want to be astronauts, firemen, uh, police officers or the president. My kids want to be influencers on YouTube. Right. So what you found is. Once there's no more work, you immediately pivot to entertainment and everybody wants to entertain each other. And so now you have an entire economy of entertainers that just want to tell stories and make people laugh or be enraged. And that's what you're starting to get into is once you get out of the actual work, like you don't need to plow the fields anymore. You don't need to build the stuff in the factory anymore. And now you don't even have to write the copy for the advertisement. You're just going to sit back and what? We're going to entertain each other. That's kind of the height of... A civilized society, right? Is the development of theater, arts, and entertainment. Like when the Greeks figured all that shit out, what did they do? They started talking to each other on stage. And we got plumbing figured out. We got agriculture figured out. We got war figured out. We got boats. What else do we need? We figured out how to smelt iron. What now? Tell me Listen, a story. Entire country full of wannabe actors, singers, and dancers just scare the shit out of you. It, it kind of does. It kind of does. <laughs> Because I've, I've about that. known and been friends with those kind of people most of my life. I know, and I know. we're we're of that ilk. <laughs> yeah. But the part that the part that I kind of look at, because I'm bullish on this, the part that I'm looking at is it's no longer our problem. All of these countries that have uh, manual labor for cheap now have automation to deal with, and they've now got like you can't if if you were going to use a personal assistant in the Philippines that would be your personal assistant that would follow the sun. And the idea is at the end of the day, you would send them an email saying, I need this, 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 and this done by the time I wake up. And the next morning you wake up and your friend in the Philippines or Malaysia, the Japan, you know, 12 cents a day, they do all that work for you. Now AI can do it. AI can schedule your calendar. AI can draft an email. AI can do all this stuff for you. So they're going to be shit out of a job, which means now you're going to push all this entertainment educator influencer bullshit down the stream. I mean, China's already fucked. I found this the other day, which was fascinating to me. Labor costs in China are 14 times higher than Mexico. Really? You believe that shit? That surprises me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause That's their economy's caught up. They've done the factories. They've done all the basic work. They've laid the yeah. concrete. They've, they've got all the infrastructure and now you have influencer factories. I saw a really creepy video of this underground uh, parking garage in a rich district where there was like 80 kids all dispersed along this parking garage and each of them had a ring light and a phone in front of them with a green screen. And if you can imagine that little, like you have this little cell, like this little eight by six foot cell of you and your green screen and your ring light, and you're an influencer and you're all on the same Wi-Fi, and you're all pulling power from the same place. But it's like, have you ever seen, um, you probably have, cause you've been in the movies. You ever seen 
a press line. Like all we see is the banner backdrop where everybody gets their picture taken. But from the person getting their picture taken, what do you see? You see eight photographers. I've seen a press line. I've never been in a press line. And you see, you see eight talking heads on microphones staring at cameras and they look completely out of place unless you realize that on the other side of the camera is a broadcast feed. Same idea. That's all going down in China right now. Well, I think that uh, I think it's interesting the way that we've seen this this evolution of what kids want to be. Right. And it's it's kind of it's warped. It's warped the idea of what labor actually is. Right. Because when would you what would you and I have thought if somebody told us 20 years ago that there's going to be people online who take pictures of themselves in bikinis and dance around and tell you what to buy. And that's a job. You and I would have gone, no, it isn't. That's that's not a job. That's playtime. There's 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 no there's no labor involved in that. That's just a that's just an exercise in self-indulgement. Well, we grew up before broad scale internet. We grew up before social media. We grew up before cell phones. We right. we grew up before internet research. Like we had to do the Dewey Decimal System. We had to actually go find a fucking book. <laughs> There's a lot of shit that we that we probably take for granted because our generation really had to do a lot of analog stuff that a lot of these kids waking up, like my my kids now, they can't imagine a world without a screen. Oh, sure. Like what, yeah. what kind of phone did you have when you were growing up? I didn't have one. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? I didn't have a phone. The phone was on the wall and it didn't have any pictures. And all I did was talking to it. And that's Dad, fucking how did, alien how to them. That might as well be the telegraph. The yeah, it was how attached to the wall. And we had, a, we had a 28 foot cord because there was no, there was no such thing as wireless. Like wireless was the TV remote. So the whole thing is that the, the concept of work is ultimately, it's always shifting. I would say it's always, it's always evolving, but now we're getting into the point where blue collar work was automated in the sixties, the seventies and the eighties. And now white collar work is getting automated in the twenties and the thirties. And pretty soon you just, we're not going to recognize work in 10 years. It's not going to be, it's not going to be anything that we thought we knew the same way that the guy that was uh, working the auto factories in the 60s and 70s they're going to look at these articulating arms that are doing spot welds and be like what the fuck what am i supposed to do is well you're supposed to inspect the robot now dude you know skill up learn something new so to wrap this thing up we we went off on a tangent here i i am personally very happy about this that the copyright office said no human no deals because i already have my own rant about the copywriting system as it is but i i think this is a good thing final thoughts yeah i think it's i think it's probably a good thing um it it does it does make you question the value of what a copy the value of a copyright moving forward is going to be because how many of how many of the things that we used to copyright in terms of images are going to be ai generated anyway what's going to be the use of the copyright unless it was copy copyright copy uh copyrighted copywritten yeah Copy wrote 20 or 30 years ago. What's the value of it? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting to the point now where creativity can be altered ever so slightly that that 25% change that allows for an alteration of copy, the AI is going to do that. So you take a copyrighted image and you alter it 25 or 26%, whatever the AI considers the algorithm or the, or the formula to be, and boom, you've got a new image and now you can do whatever you want with it. So one of the stories that I had going on for for the show, which we may come back to in an episode in the future, is Mickey Mouse is no longer under copyright. Really? The Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie has expired. Wow. Now, he's popped up in, in later iterations, like they gave him yellow shoes and they gave him color and they and they changed up his general makeup. But the Mickey Mouse from the 1920s 
which is imagine this Walt Disney was doing his thing a hundred years ago. The original Mickey mouse is no longer copyrightable, which means you can do whatever you want with, with Mickey mouse. I was laughing at something. Somebody did a horror movie with Winnie the Pooh because the copyright expired. <laughs> do whatever the fuck you want with Winnie the Pooh. Well, so many possibilities. I'm going to start making some steamboat Willie Winnie the Pooh t-shirts and see if I can make myself a little cash. Well, little, little Cleveland steamer Winnie. <laughs> Maybe animation will go retro and it'll be cool to have Steamboat Willie and Winnie the Pooh from the 20s on your T-shirt. <laughs> Last thing I'll say about that is that that guy who, uh, who writes Dilbert, he's really fucked. <laughs> oh, yeah, Scott Adams. Scott Adams is a trouble. <laughs> oh. All right. That was our top story. Let's get to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. Tonight's crank file comes to us from the Associated Press. Real fucking news, people. This is dated January 16th, but I held on to it because this was just so tasty. Second Colorado library closes due to meth contamination. Englewood, Colorado. Contamination? Well, let's get into it. For the second time in a month, the Colorado library. Second time in a month, a Colorado mm-hmm. library. Bear in mind, same library. Second time. For the second time in a month, Colorado Library has closed its doors to clean up methamphetamine contamination. Officials in the Denver suburb of Inglewood shut down the city library last week within a couple hours of getting test results Wednesday showing that the contamination in the facility's restrooms exceeded state thresholds. (laughs) Other spaces such as countertops also tested positive for lower levels of the drug and will require specialized cleaning. Large-scale remediation work will include removing tainted surfaces, walls, duct work, and exhaust fan equipment. City of about 33,000 just south of Denver decided to test for the drug after officials in the nearby college town of Boulder closed its main library after finding meth contamination. It is the latest example of the balancing act urban libraries have to navigate between making their facilities be welcoming to all while keeping them clean and safe. When a rash of overdoses in libraries were reported in the mid-2010s as the opioid crisis grew across the United States, some libraries were equipped with the antidote naloxone, known by the brand name Narcan. So far, it seems library closures triggered by methamphetamine contamination are limited to Colorado, according to spokesman Raymond Garcia of the American Library Association, which is unaware of any happening elsewhere across the country in recent years. The group declined, the group declined to comment on whether drug use has been increasing, citing lack of data. I'm going to call bullshit on this because I think there's definitely some libraries in Bullhead City. Ah. I would go so far as to say nobody's looking for it. How many fucking libraries in West Virginia? Well, you know, the thing about this is they're out there chopping up uh, oxy and carding it and snorting it. I'm I'm all for self-educating, but what the hell are people doing in libraries anymore? I'm I'm in a library in a decade. I read I read more than 90% of the adults that I know, and I haven't been to a library in a decade. So what the hell are people going to libraries for? I don't know, but there's a, there's a pretty bitch library. library. Just, a, just a big row of computers. They're like, they're like internet cafes. Now there's, there's well, no point. The to thing. Even go, no, no, here's book. the thing. The Peoria city library, which is the Southern, not my library, my library is in the North side, but the Southern central Peoria library has a full podcast studio that you can rent. I could be doing this shit on the fucking dime if I wanted to. So they're trying. That's not a library. That's a studio. Well, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying to add more than just come in with the lady in the glasses and, and borrow a book for seven years. I mean, if I, if I could, if I had to guess the top five things that people do in a library, two of them would be masturbating and, and methamphetamines. 
Really? Well, wasn't there? There was a chick in Oregon that was doing porn from the library, if I recall. Got to make that dollar somehow. Allegedly. We'll take that offline. The article continues. Boulder officials suggested that their city's library closure last month was the result of strict state rules for cleaning up meth once testing reveals it. They also pointed out that standards for how much meth contamination is acceptable were developed with an eye towards homes where frequent exposure is more likely than in public buildings. Colorado's rules are some of the most conservative in the nation using an abundance of caution to protect infants and children from exposure. Boulder Library has since reopened, but its bathrooms remain closed as crews do can decontamination work, including replacing fans and vents. Uh, once that's done, the bathrooms will remain locked and anyone needing to use them will have to ask a staff member or security guard for access, like the gas station. Bro, can I have a key with a hubcap on it? I gotta take a piss. <laughs> So you you know what I'm thinking, and I won't use his name, but we have a we have a good friend, <laughs> former former uh, former college buddy. We'll just call him Joe Weagleboom, who uh, was involved in a pretty high up in a Colorado county government. I don't know if this falls under his dis- district, but we might be able to get some insider information on this particular topic. We'll have to ask him. However, after some library users said they did not feel safe, the city hired security guards last year. It also established a code of conduct with the aim of helping librarians be able to enforce the rules. Englewood also recently increased funding to add more staff in hopes of deterring drug use, according to the library's website. I'm going to have to hit up Ziggy for some blue ice. Yeah, we should we should touch base with Ziggy because this is in his backyard. That was a guest. Oh, he's been on the pod before, but we've never actually brought him in to talk about meth well, contamination. Well, you had him on the wrong episode. <laughs> <laughs> No, we had him in. So fuck, when is, we talked to him. Yeah, we talked to him right after the 2020 election to talk about uh, election integrity and about how how elections go down. And he gave us a very long tutorial about the vote counting process because he's a clerk uh, in a county up there. And he's like, this is the way it, this is the way it's done. And he's like, I wear a bulletproof vest to work because there's cranks out there. And he gave us a very detailed breakdown about the vote counting process. And I was like, wow, it was illuminating. Uh, but, you know, there's. Plenty of shit going on in his area of the world. But they, this is an interesting did, follow-up. Maybe I'll set a reminder. Did he use the word crank? Oh, no, that's all me. That's all That's all, Danny <laughs> Paul. All right. Anyway, that racks up the crank file. Let's get to the hero of the week, shall we? Of the week. Tonight's hero of the week comes to us from Business Insider. Midge, I fell out of my chair when I read this one, and Leon is going to be pissed that he missed this episode because we're going to talk about it. I love this story. I, w- I wish we had a story like this every single week. This is fucking real, people. $276 million was spent on 31 Spanish trains before it was realized they were too big to fit the tunnels. All right. In Spain, Southwest Europe, Spain, a region in Spain spent $276 million on new trains and they look good. Like they did a good job. These are nice trains. They fit all the spec. They're beautiful. They go fast. They're efficient. They're wonderful. They're too big for the tunnels. <laughs> Two officials in the transport industry were fired as a consequence. Those are our heroes of the week. The president of Cantabria, a region of Northern Spain called the error an unspeakable botch to say the least. The article begins Spanish transport services are going Back to the drawing board after spending millions of euros on new commuter trains that are too large to fit in tunnels of the rail network. Two senior officials in the Spanish transport industry were fired earlier this week after local news outlet El Comercio reported last month that the government had spent 258 million euro on unusable trains. The 31 trains were meant to replace older ones in the north of Spain on a route that connected the Cantabria and Asturias. 
regions. President of Cantabria, Miguel Angel Revilla, called the circumstance an unspeakable botch. Renfe, the country's national train operator, ordered the trains in 2020, granting the manufacturing contact to the transport manufacturing company CAF. Renfe said it provided correct measurements from Adif, a train track company. Euronews reported, but the manufacturers said they warned the national train line that the sizing was likely not correct. The miscommunication likely arose because the tunnels in the region were built in the 19th century, according to Euronews, so they do not accommodate recent standard train sizes. Luckily, the trains were still in the design phase, the country's transport minister said, and had not yet been built when the error came to light. They were meant to be available in 2024. (laughs) However, a complete redesign means the new service will not be available until 2026. This is not the first time there have been sizable train troubles in Europe. In 2014, a French rail company spent billions of euros on trains that were too wide for the tracks. The old country. Oh, man, I have have so many thoughts. Well, first (laughs) off, Danny Paul, I was I was actually in my toolkit a little bit earlier today. It turns out I got a couple of extra measuring tapes. I think I know where I'm going to send them. Get that shit in a little envelope. Send them to the president of Spain and go, here you go, buddy. I I heard you might need these. Here's the thing. You got to scrap two hundred seventy six million dollars, right? Or two hundred fifty eight million euros. What is the cost of drilling those tunnels? Ah, and here's the, this is the other thought that I had. There's one person on this planet, he's pretty well known, who couldn't be happier about this story. Guess who that person is? And I bet you'd take a million per tunnel. So how many tunnels are we talking about? If it's less than 257 million Elon's tunnels. going to be all over this shit. <laughs> I got your drills. Don't you even worry about any train. Don't even change the size of the trains. We're just going to bore those tunnels out. We're going to make yep. them, make them just a smidge bigger put that shit on a boat i'll be there before you know it i'm blaming this shit on a siesta and a faulty alarm clock yeah the siesta the whole thing about the siesta is from from the american perspective a siesta is fucked but i'm reading this book now called why we sleep and a siesta is what we need we need to take two hours off in the afternoon evolutionarily speaking we need the afternoon nap if any of you are reaching for a pot of coffee at 2 30 or 3 in the afternoon that's normal we're supposed to be sleeping According to evolution. Well, there's a couple thousand people on East Palestine, Ohio, that probably disagree with you. Oh, fuck. That was fucked up. Yeah. Again, Leon misses it because Leon knows exactly what that is. And he probably knows people who are affected by it. Yeah. That, uh, that whole story, when that came out, I, you could just, you could, you could hear the lawyer's erections getting to full mass when they heard that that place is just going to be awash with lawsuits. It's going to be unbelievable. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the basic thing was the Obama administration, well, so the the Bush administration took regulations down. The Obama administration put regulations back up. The Trump administration took those regulations back down. And there was a rash of train crashes. There was a big one that, and mostly in the fucking state of Pennsylvania. So you're right along that Rust Belt corridor. Like Mm. trains are coming off the tracks. They're going too fast or on curves. And a lot of it was just, they don't want to have to deal with it. So they lobbied Congress and Congress removed the regulations. And so this was, there was some things about this particular one in East Palestine that may not have been averted by the regulation that's in limbo. But for the most part, the basic gist of what I understand is they've done a very good job of keeping regulators out of their business and they fucked up. Well, I was watching CNN, they were talking about this and they they actually talked about how generally speaking, trains are getting safer. And then they mentioned the statistics of uh, I believe it was last year, um, just in terms of derailments, 
Guess how many derailments there are a day in the U.S.? I'm afraid to ask. There's three derailments a day. That's over a thousand a year. Doesn't that seem like a lot of trains coming off the tracks? I'm not getting on Amtrak ever again. That's horrifying. Like three derail, like, like the train tips over or the train just runs off the track and I don't stays. know, but but derailment. Maybe that means somebody forgot to, you know, move the track over when they were when they were changing tracks or whatever, and a and an engine ended up in the dirt. But three derailments a day seems like a lot. If that's moving trains, if there's a train next to the freeway, I'm staying in the fast lane because God knows when that fucker's coming off. And I know we got a lot of trains. Like we have more train tracks in this country than any other country in the world. So I get it. We got a lot of trains, but three a day coming off the tracks is absurd. There's no reason we should have that many trains just flying off willy nilly. Well, the basic gist of it is that, that. People don't pay attention to trains. They don't pay attention to trains in Ohio. They don't pay attention to trains. So thank you, hero of the week. You're fired. Wouldn't you just, wouldn't you just given anything to just be in that office when somebody discovered this and the guy, the guy whose responsibility it was to measure the size of the train and the size compared to the size of the tunnels was presented with this particular information. You know what I think? I think it was probably somebody that was low down that nobody liked that was screaming at the top of their lungs. They're too big for the tunnels. And I was like, whatever, whatever. it's a good contract. Shut up. We're all getting paid. Everything's fine. No, it isn't. They're too big for the tunnels. And then all of a sudden it finally gets to a level where somebody goes, wait a minute, what the fuck is this? And everybody below them goes, what do you mean? It's totally cool. What are you talking about? And then they find the guy in the corner of the office who nobody likes is like, I told you. And then of course the media jumps in and goes, can we talk to the guy over there that nobody likes? Can we get a conference room with that guy? Hey, you remember when I said nobody ever fucking listens to me? Well, this oh, is what that, was, that was, that was that guy's moment in the sun. That's right. That would have been a beautiful Cuban B moment. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. And I'm out. Yo, I'm Cuban B. Yes. Cuban B. <laughs> Anyway, that was Hero of the Week. Let's get into adulting. How old are you guys? We're not fucking kids anymore. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your pain? Everything hurts. I'm a grown-ass man, dog. Why pay taxes here, fucker? We're not like you. We're grown-ups, motherfucker. When 900 years old, you reach, look as good you are not. Hmm? <laughs> Tonight's adulting comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. This was an interesting one to me, Midge, because I think we are approaching that age. Now, you don't have children, but you are approaching that that time in life. I'm beyond the age of, of children. I'll inherit somebody else's if anything. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think you're menopause. I think you're just looking for the right one to, to slip one past the goalie. But this one was interesting <laughs> to me because of the pressure that are put on men of this oh, rank is the right word, but it fascinated me nonetheless. So this is High earning men are cutting back on their working hours. While most U.S. workers are putting in fewer hours, men in the top 10% of earners cut back their time on the job the most, according to a new study. American workers have cut the number of hours they spend in their jobs since 2019, but no group has dialed back its time on the clock more than young, high-earning men whose jobs typically demand long hours. The top-earning 10% of men in the U.S. labor market logged 77 fewer hour work hours in 2022 on average than those in the same earnings group in 2019. That translates to one and a half hours less time on the job a week, or a 3% reduction. Over the same three-year period, the top earning 10% of women cut back time by 29 hours, which translates to about half an hour less work each week or a 1% reduction. High-earning men in the 25 to 39 age range who could be described as workaholics 
were pulling back often by choice. Since this group already put in longer hours than the typical U.S. worker and women at the highest income levels, these high earners had longer workdays to trim. The drop in working hours among high-earning men and women to help explain why the U.S. job market is even tighter than what would be expected given the current levels of unemployment and labor force participation. What do you, what do you think about this? That, that dudes are scaling back. What do you think? I would attribute this largely to um, remote work. Now, oh. I don't think there's any way this would have happened without work going remote the way it did in the last two years. I agree. I agree. Because because employers wouldn't have allowed it. This is 100% based on the fact that employers don't know how much their, their workers are working. And it's less people sitting uh, in an office doing other things that aren't work-related than taking that time at home, working harder while they're at home during the work hours, and then, you know, cutting out early or starting later and, and doing other things at home. I think people became more motivated in terms of how much work they get done during work hours because they found, well, if I can make this work at home, if I can do more with less time at home, I've got more time to spend with my kids to do things. Shit. If I worked from home half the time I was actually working, I would also be doing little stuff in my house as I was walking around. Cause I'd have a headset on and making phone calls, but I'd be doing other stuff. I did that. I was probably more productive in the time that I did work from home when I was in a, a office style job, but I also got more done at home because it was easier to do. And you also have to remember, like, let's say if there's a, let's say everybody had a, on average, a half hour commute to work right now, you cut that out. If they're not doing that, they can work another, what was it, another uh, hour and a half less. Yeah. So if they had a two and a half hour commute, they could work an hour more without the commute. And they're still working an hour and a half less every week. Boom. I just made a case for everybody working from home. You're welcome, America. <laughs> Solving problems everywhere. The paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which isn't yet peer reviewed, suggests high earners were more likely to benefit from flexible working arrangements. Ding, ding, ding which could be a factor in reduced work hours. Before the pandemic, Eli Albrecht, a lawyer in Washington, D.C., says he worked between 80 to 90 hours a week. Now he says he puts in 60 to 70. That's still more than most men in America who averaged 40 and a half in 2021. Mr. Albrecht's schedule changed when he shared Zoom school duties for two of his young children with his wife. He's maintained the reduced hours because it's making his relationship more equitable, he says, and gives him family time. I used to feel, and a lot of dads used to feel, that just by providing for the family financially, that was sufficient. And it's just not. The downshift documented by Dr. Shin and his colleagues occurred as many professionals have been reassessing their ambitions and the value of long working hours. Emboldened by a strong job market, millions of Americans quit their jobs in search of better hours and more flexibility. Overall, U.S. employees worked 18 fewer hours a year on average in 2022 compared to 2019, with employed men putting in 28 fewer hours last year and employed women cutting their time by nine hours, data from U.S. Census Bureau's current population survey. Average male worker put in 2006 hours last year, while the average female worker logged 1758. Separate data from the Census Bureau suggests that men with families in particular are working less. Between 19 and 21, married men devoted roughly 13 fewer minutes on average to each workday, according to the American Time Use Survey which hasn't yet published 2022 figures, they spent more time on socializing and relaxing, as well as household activities. According to men surveyed by the Census Bureau, the amount of time unmarried men spent on work changed little during that same period. So you're right. This is That's about spending more time with the kids. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, interesting uh, that it's interesting that this is our topic, and that I read an article um, where they asked people in other countries. A lot of it was um, Western Europe, mainly mainly developed countries, but asked asked people what their opinion was of work habits for Americans and the fact that Americans legendarily work more than other developed countries. And one of the quotes from one of the people they asked was only in America, do people brag about how many hours a week they put in working? I thought that was really interesting because we've always known that Europeans work less. <clears throat> the Japanese are probably an exception. They probably work a lot more than, than we do. But generally speaking, if you take these other developed countries, they all work less than we do. They put fewer hours in and none of them brag about how much they work. So I wonder what influence Maybe it's not a direct influence. The opinions of people from other countries is a direct influence, but the fact that Americans looked around during the pandemic and went, why are we working so much harder than everybody else? Like, what are we, what are we getting for this? We have bigger cars, we have bigger houses, we have more stuff, but why are we working so much harder than everybody else? And is it worth it? And I think that's probably a big part of the thought process that happened with a lot of people in this country during the pandemic, everybody looked around and went, I'm like, I could be dead tomorrow. You know, like, even though we, we realized that the pandemic was mainly affecting elderly people, the people were dying from COVID. It was more the elderly, more obese people with, with other factors, health factors that made them higher risk. Everybody was looking around going, I don't know how, how long I'm going to live. It's why everybody started quitting jobs and going to other jobs. But ultimately people wanted to work less and live more. And I, I, I can't help but think that had a lot to do with how our work ethic or work habits differ from other people in the world who have the same education, the same general standard of living. But if you take our the amount that we work into account, that's really degraded our standard of living a lot. And it's done that for years. And I think people are tired of it. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the case. I mean, I anecdotally, I, I saw that. I was like, what, what, why am I doing this? And you kind of think to yourself, I never looked at what your productivity in the office was until we started having serious discussions about work from home. And then the idea is, well, I'll just do it from home. It's like, why? Like, well, because I'm more productive at home. Why? Why aren't you more productive at the office? It's because the office is bullshit. You lock me in from eight to five. And how do you know whether or not I'm working that time? And the answer is nobody is. There, there's a, I can count the number of people on my hand that actively use eight to five in a captive environment trapped at the office. They don't. They surf social media. They go take a shit. They go to the break room. They socialize <laughs> in the hallway. It's like nobody, nobody works eight to five. They're, they're forging relationships at work or they're fucking around because there's just simply no way that the, that, that you can occupy yourself productively for that amount of time. So the whole idea <clears throat> that you can get more done at the office. And this is something that a lot of people deal with this is collaboration. You know, I'm using air quotes for those of you at home, the idea that you need to be in close proximity to somebody to generate a relationship with them. In my view is, patently false. There's a guy that I share a wall with at my day job who I never talk to in person. And I love him. He's a great guy, but our jobs don't require that we interact. I meet him on teams. My relationship has been built via video conference, or if I'm in the office, we go to a conference room, but I'm never knocking on the wall. Hey man, what's happening? So the whole idea of you got to be in the office to collaborate. Absolutely lost on me. So I think your point is apt. You spend all this time at work working 
And then you realize, what am I doing it for? When you could probably trim up to an hour a day in some circumstances and still get the same shit done. Mm -hmm. So I, I blame yeah. it. Look at looking back at my previous job, I was doing mortgages, as you know, um, there were a lot of people who were there from seven or eight in the morning till seven at night. And, and that's pretty typical for that industry because it is, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work you can't get away from. You've got to return phone calls. There's constant emails. You're, you're, you're constantly dealing with these teams of people who are doing other things for you. But I was one of the few people who was in at eight and I was out at four or five. The difference between me and a lot of the other people in that office was I wasn't taking walks around the building at between 10 and 1030 and then going to going and take an hour lunch. And I wasn't taking 20 minutes to bullshit with employees time one. I knew there was other things that I needed to get done. And it was mainly because I wanted to be there from eight or nine and be gone by five. And I was, and I had no problem sticking to that schedule. And I was outperforming most of these people who were spending another seven or eight hours in the office more than I was every week, week in and week out. And people were wondering because they knew I was never the guy there at seven, eight o'clock at night. And this was a real bad week. I was never there that late. And it was because it was very efficient while I was at work. I was not spending a lot of time with that. Maybe it was to my detriment. I'm sure a lot of those people built some relationships with other people there that, you know, that may have helped them in ways, but I was also good friends with my boss at the time we'd go golf. So I felt like there wasn't a lot that I was losing on it, but your, your, your point is absolutely right. There is a ton of time that is burned and, and nobody, even though I was spending a lot fewer hours in the office, I was known as a workhorse because while I was there, people knew I was getting shit done because that's the way I was. So it's, I guess my point is it's, it's a choice, right? It's what you want to do with that extra time that you have. And the way I always looked at it was, can I, you know, do I want to spend four or five times a day bullshitting with people for 20 minutes or do I want to get this job done and go home and get, and, and get other things done and, and spend my time with friends and, and doing other things. So, I mean, I guess it's a choice, but it's definitely, it's how you spend your time while you're there also. Yeah. The other factor is if you're still a smoker and you burn 20 to 22 minutes per smoke break mm -hmm. and you do three of those a day, that's an hour. Everybody smokes in that industry. Yeah. Yep. So there's a lot of shit that goes on in the office that I don't think is taken into account when you think about this return to office uh, collaboration. So I'll, I'll throw in one last thing just for shits and giggles is. The whole idea of you need to come back to the office. I've seen and heard some concepts from uh, various pundits. The whole return to office is just a way to slim the workforce. We don't have to fire you yeah. if you quit. Yeah, not 100% of the, the reasons for doing things and, and why companies say they're doing things is based on honesty. Let's be honest. 100%. <laughs> there's, there's always that dark side, right? Let's, uh, let's find a creative way of letting these people get rid of themselves. Right. Yeah. Oh, you don't like it? Well, you can quit. Good, because we don't have to pay you severance. Good times. It rocks. All right, Mitch, it's that time. Do you have something that you want to get off your chest? Yes, I do. All right, let me get it going here. It's time for WTF. Excuse me, what the... What the... What the... Hey, yo, what the... What? What the... What the... Whiskey... Mitch, the floor is yours. All right, well, I was recently buried in the dark, dark web where I often lurk. <laughs> and found that for years, one of my heroes, one of my uh, one of my my acting mentors, Johnny Depp, has been trying to 
brand his own rum, Captain Jack's Grog, for years. Now, if you're paying attention to what happens with celebrities when they get famous, they generally find somebody to brew an alcohol for them. They sit around getting wasted. They eventually slap their name on it. They do a couple of um, commercials or, you know, online videos. We've all seen Ryan Reynolds uh, vodka pitches. Yep. I bought some of the rocks tequila. It's not a bad idea. I mean, uh, Sammy Hagar started that shit with Cabo Wabo years ago, but I got a bone to pick with Disney. Disney said, no, we own Captain Jack. We own Captain Jack's images. We own the name. We'd like to own you, even if we can't. And you can't do it. You don't get to have Captain Jack's grog because Captain Jack's is ours. Now, I was an actor when I was a kid. I spent one day working for Disney, one day in my career. I did a Christmas special at Disneyland. You know how I got paid? I got a free ticket to Disneyland. I got a voucher for a fucking churro. That's all I got. Disney is a notoriously cheap company. They love screwing their employees. This man gave us how many Pirates of the Caribbean movies? If Captain Jack Grog came out, I would drink no other rum ever. Every time this episode started, I would show you a bottle of Captain Jack's rum, and I would say nothing else in the intro. They're not even asking for a cut of the profits. No, they just said no. And let's be honest. Johnny's had a rough year, right? (laughs) I'm a heavy drinker. This is America. And those of you following the news, he's... He's had a couple of different lawsuits involving the divorce of his wife, Amber Heard. And yes, he's and a, had a, relatively, rough year. a relatively public court battle. Let's be honest. Now, yeah, 2022 was not a good time for him. I have, as a heavy drinker in America, I've had sex with some very unattractive women. And I never had the joy of waking up next to Amber Heard. However, I have never woken up next to a pile of shit that one of those girls left on my bed in the next morning. The man's had a rough year. It was a very expensive court battle. He may have to sell his island. And I don't want to see that. So I'm I'm starting a petition. You can go to my website, Captain Jack's Rum and Grog. This is made up.com. You can sign the petition. <laughs> That's a long URL. We're gonna we're gonna work around Disney on this. We got to get AI involved. I want Captain Jack to have his rum. I want to see Johnny's face on that label with a great big FU to Amber Heard. God bless her. She's hot as could possibly be. Uh, But the man's had a rough year, and I feel like this is a win that he deserves, and I feel like America owes it to him, Danny Paul. America owes it to him. God bless America. Free the Ukraine. I'm out. I like it. I imagine I imagine myself in the scenario where someone would say, oh, this shit, this is the worst rum I've ever heard of. But you have heard of it. <laughs> that would make my fucking day. Join the anyway. movement. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. Mitch, how are you feeling? You ran solo this one. Yeah, no, I felt I got to be honest. I was I was a little nervous. It was like uh, it was like it was like a. It was like a one man show where I would have somebody constantly interrupting, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> well was, done, sir. It was well fun. Done. I thought, uh, I, I, it's always fun to, it's always fun to, to, uh, babble with the boys from high school and college. But I feel like we, we gave the viewers, the, the listeners there. They're they're fair shake tonight. Well, I'm glad you could join me. I appreciate it. Anyway, that's our show. You can email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. Give us a call at 602-529-4562. Leave a message for Danny, Leon, Mr. Jones, or the Midge, or any of our special guests. We want to hear from you. Give us ideas for content. Refute anything we say on the show, please. If we're out of line, push us back in. 
If you like the show, please like, follow, subscribe, share with a friend. We're on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Share a quiet drink with us next episode. Same brown time, same brown channel. Bottleofbrown.com. This place is dead anyway, man.